0: Wow, we can't sing that song loud enough. What a song, what a truth. The Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Well, good good morning. This fall, Pastor Matt has been leading us through a series in Ephesians. And I trust that this little letter of Ephesians has been encouraging strengthening and enlarging your heart for Christ in many ways. Personally, uh, my heart has been deeply encouraged in this series, and I'm excited for what's ahead. And my prayer for all of us is that the Holy Spirit would be writing the book of Ephesians on each of our hearts, personally impressing his words upon us. I also pray that its words would be shaping the culture of our church, from the leaders to the newcomers, that every one of us would see our need for the gospel as we dive deeper into what it means to be people who are in Christ, rescued from darkness and called to walk as children of light. But this morning we're going to pause our series in Ephesians, Uh, not to disconnect from it, uh, rather I plan to complement this fall series by getting to know the church at Ephesus. I'd like to look at the book of Acts to see the beginnings and background of this church in Ephesus. I'd like to meet these believers and understand their story, listening to their story, reading their church history, as it were, to hear what the Lord has done for them. And I hope in doing this, our confidence in the gracious power of God will be reinforced I want to marvel with you at what Jesus did for this group of people so that we who have believed in Christ will marvel at what Jesus has done for this group of people. So my aim is simple today. I want to remind you of the power of the cross of Christ as we see it in Acts chapter 19. Charles Spurgeon once said of the power of the cross, Oh, the power, the melting, conquering, transforming power of that dear cross of Christ. My brothers, we have but to abide by the preaching of it. We have but to constantly, but constantly to tell abroad the matchless story, and we may expect to see the most remarkable spiritual results. We need to despair of no man now that Jesus has died for sinners. With such a hammer as the doctrine of the cross, the most flinty heart will be broken. And with such a fire as the sweet love of Christ, the most mighty iceberg will be melted. We need never despair for the heathenish or superstitious races of men. If we can but find occasion to bring the doctrine of Christ crucified into contact with their natures, it will yet change them and Christ will be their king. The good news of the sweet love of Jesus is still changing people. It is effective. It has power. He is still graciously and powerfully working in this world. His light is still conquering the darkness. And in Acts 19, we see this in dramatic fashion. So if you have your Bible, please open to Acts 19. Here is the true story of God's gracious power working through the gospel to transform people who believed in Jesus. People who, like you and I, were once far off, lost, pagans, darkened in their understanding, without hope and without God in the world. This is an action-packed True story of how Jesus built his church in Ephesus in the first century, a city that at that point in history had no church at all. We may call it an unreached people group. And Jesus did this through an obedient missionary named Paul. So watch and be thrilled at how God's gracious power works through gospel preaching to conquer opposing forces of darkness. But before we do, let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would give us a great sense of your truth, great clarity of mind of what it means to be in Christ. Empower us by your Holy Spirit to see, to be illuminated, to understand your words. And I pray that for those who don't yet know Jesus, this would be a word that touches their hearts. And that they would see that he is Lord. And that they would see that he is greater than all. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Acts 19, 1-7 shows us that God's gracious power works through gospel preaching to conquer ignorance. Verses 1-5 through 5 says, And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So in those first five verses, we see that Paul comes to Ephesus and meets some of John the Baptist's disciples. Now right away, you'll notice that this is a unique time in history. Now we don't have people that are called John the Baptist's disciples anymore. These people, at this time in history, were people that hadn't yet heard of the Holy Spirit. It appears that the message of Jesus' death and resurrection hasn't yet reached them. Though they were disciples of John who pointed to Jesus, they were not yet disciples of Christ. But God was sending, uh, was faithfully sending a missionary to give them the good news of Jesus, to tell them more. So God placed Paul in their path to tell them about the Jesus whom John the Baptist pointed to. God was graciously organizing an opportunity for them to hear about the Lord Jesus through Paul. And on hearing about Christ, they believed, then Paul baptized them. So Paul's pattern of preaching the gospel, then baptizing believers, is the ordinary pattern the church follows in the book of Acts, as you can see, and throughout history, as you can read. And at the end of this service today, we're actually going to see and listen to, a, 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 we're going to watch a baptism of someone who believed in Christ as well. And that will be exciting for us to hear the story about how Jesus has touched this individual's life. So that's an ordinary pattern that the church follows. Believe in Christ. Repent and believe in Christ and be baptized. Now after this ordinary act in Acts uh, 19, 1 through 5, something extraordinary happens. Something controversial happens. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. So what's happening here? Well, if you've how many of you have read the book of Acts, the whole thing? Okay, all right, action-packed, beautiful. It's a drama. It's 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 a it's a true story of the history of the early church. Now, if you've read the book of Acts, you know that in Acts chapter two, uh, we read about the day of Pentecost. A monumental day for the church. Acts 19, 6 should remind you of what happened on that day. This passage, this verse has been called a mini Pentecost. So I think to understand what happens in uh, Acts 19, verse 6, we need to understand what happened at Pentecost. So feel free to turn over to Acts chapter 2 with me for a moment. And I'm going to give you my interpretation of... Acts chapter 2, what happens on the day of Pentecost. I want you to follow along to make sure that you see where I'm getting my ideas from. Acts chapter 2 is the day of Pentecost, okay? Luke is the author of the book of Acts, but he also wrote the book of Luke, the gospel according to Luke. So Luke Acts is uh, is part 1, book 1, and Acts is part 2, book 2, okay? So the gospel of Luke is part one and Acts is part two. This is important to consider when you're trying to understand Acts 2 and the day of Pentecost. Because we need to bear in mind what has just happened in Luke's gospel. Okay, It's part one of the two-part narrative. The day of Pentecost is a day of fulfillment. A fulfillment of what? We need to go back to Luke 24 to understand what has happened. So, Luke 24 is a day that the risen Christ... Pro- uh, sorry, the day of Pentecost is a day that the risen Christ promise would come in Luke 24. Okay, in Luke 24, you don't have to go there, but I'll read it to you. Jesus said this to his disciples. He said to them, "...these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms would be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures." So that's the background. When we come to Acts chapter 2, the disciples are still in Jerusalem waiting for the promise, power from on high, that is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will empower them to be witnesses, did you catch it, to the nations. Okay? So while 120... Believers are gathered waiting in Jerusalem for the promised Holy Spirit to give them power. There are also other people on the day of Pentecost present. In Acts 2 5, we read, you could check it there for yourselves, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And in Acts, verses 9 through 11, you see a list of the nations present on that day. So Acts shows how the church received the promised Holy Spirit who'd empower her to fulfill the command of Jesus to make disciples of all the nations, okay? Now, uh, elbow your neighbor and say, wake up. You still awake? (laughs) Okay, we're almost there. We're almost there. What is he going on about? (laughs) All right, background. You got the background. So what does that have to do with tongues? I believe the Holy Spirit supernaturally filled the church, enabling them to speak in tongues. What are tongues? Actual intelligible languages on the day of Pentecost, so that they would hear the gospel, the nations would hear the gospel in their mother tongue. So that the nations could hear about the mighty works of God. You can see that in verse 11. So if you look carefully at Acts 2, verses 6 and 8 and 11, what causes people to marvel? What causes people to marvel is the miracle that God is translating the gospel from these Galileans tongues or languages to the heart languages of the hearers. Each person assembled there hears about the mighty works of God, verse 11, Acts 2, check it, make sure I'm saying the right thing, in our own tongues, languages. They're hearing the mighty works of God in their languages. This is before Bible translation. This is the beginning of the church. This is the fulfillment, the power, the Holy Spirit came so that the church would witness to the nations about Jesus. But here, Peter preaches the gospel, not just to the 120. He preaches the gospel to several people uh, from every nation under heaven, and they hear the good news in their mother tongue in their distinct language. Some have called Pentecost the great reversal of Babel. Remember the Tower of Babel. At Babel, the people were divided, dispersed, confused throughout, and sent throughout the nations of the world by their different languages. They could not be unified because they could not understand one another. So they gathered groups and went and dispersed to people groups, there, where they could actually understand one another. It, Pentecost has been called the great reversal of Babel because at Pentecost, the people who were uh, dispersed throughout the world are actually, throughout the nations of the world, are actually together in Jerusalem, unified by believing in Christ and hearing the mighty deeds of God in their own heart languages. Now, if you know any church planters or any missionaries, you know the importance of translating the Bible into people's heart languages. It is so essential that God's people have God's word in their heart languages because God's people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So they who are there, assembled, hearing the gospel, believe the gospel, and then they will go back home to their nations and be messengers of that message, of that Jesus, to the nations. What we often recognize about Pentecost is that Peter's sermon is a great evangelistic sermon. Absolutely. 3,000 people came to Jesus A mighty work of God happened. But what we often miss is who that sermon was directed at. People from every nation under heaven. The nations of the world were there. So the gospel that Peter preached didn't only reach the 3,000 who believed that day. There was going to be a resounding effect. It was going to ricochet through the nations of the world. Because the believers would believe that message and bring back the gospel to the nations that they belong to. Okay, so I believe these tongues we're referring to here in Acts 2 and then in Acts 19 were a special gift of communication that the Holy Spirit gave to the church so that the church would preach Christ to the nations of the world. Witnessing, declaring, translating that Jesus is Lord in different languages to different nations of the world. That he died for sinners, that he rose again, and that all mankind must respond by repenting, believing, and being baptized. So that's my interpretation of Acts 2. So now that we understand a bit of what's happening at Pentecost, let's go back. Acts 19. Remember, Acts 19.6 is referred to as a mini-Pentecost. So what was happening in Acts 19? People believed, as we saw, John the Baptist's disciples believed, received the Spirit, were baptized, the Holy Spirit gave them the ability, the utterance, to communicate in tongues and prophesy. The Holy Spirit came to empower the church to witness the gospel to people from different nations who understand different languages. Okay, but why would this matter in Ephesus? Why is this important for the Holy Spirit to do in Ephesus? Well, Paul was cutting through the Greco-Roman world with the gospel, and in Ephesus at that point in history, there was no church. This was an unreached people group. And a pagan people group at that. They worshipped idols. Why is this important? Listen to John Stott as he explains it. The laying on of apostolic hands, together with tongue speaking and prophesying, were special to Ephesus as to Samaria. In Acts 8, you can see that. In order to demonstrate visibly and publicly that particular groups were incorporated into Christ by the Spirit. The New Testament does not universalize them. There are no Samaritans or disciples of John the Baptist left in the world today. So, this was an unreached people group. And here, God the Holy Spirit in a special way confirms that the Ephesian believers were incorporated into Christ. They received the same Christ and the same Spirit that the Jewish believers at Pentecost did and they were enabled to proclaim him just like those believers did too. God Almighty was with them and had come to save that unreached people group living in darkness. Now, I'm sure you have other questions, as do I. If you have questions, feel free to email me at mrudd at (laughs) calvarybaptistchurch.ca. That was a joke. (laughs) So that section finishes with verbal gifts bestowed on those believers. And I believe the point is this. Tell others about Jesus. Fellow Christian, when you believe Jesus, you were given the Holy Spirit. Is there someone that you need to tell about Jesus? Are there people in your path each day that you need to tell about Christ? The Holy Spirit that is in you will empower you to witness for Christ to the nations here in our city. And if you can speak more than one language, you have more opportunity to get the message to people in different nations. So let us be about it. Next, we see Paul using his verbal gifts in Ephesus, and we see, this is a, an incredible thing. We see God's gracious power works through gospel preaching to conquer unbelief. So uh, in verse eight through 10, we, or verse eight through nine, we, we hear this. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some people became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, He withdrew from them and took the disciples with them, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. So Paul then sets up shop for three months in a synagogue, in a religious building, persuading people about the kingdom of God. He's just continually persuading people about the people of God. But people became so hardened in their unbelief that they started speaking evil of the church before the congregation. There's a crisis there, and the problem of unbelief that Paul faced then is a problem that we face today still, isn't it? In our churches, in our homes, and in our hearts. And while unbelief might not sound like a crime to you, it's far from innocent according to God. In fact, he will hold all people responsible for not believing in Christ on the day of judgment. Believe 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 in Christ and you will have eternal life. But don't believe in him and will be judged accordingly. But naturally our hearts cringe when told to believe in Jesus. Commit to Jesus. Follow him. Our hearts just don't like that. Jack Miller sums up unbelief this way. In each of us there is an ugly Human energy driving us away from God. A reactive allergy to God and his holiness. A refusal to submit to his control. And a treasonous disloyalty to his person and laws. The hard truth. This is sin against a holy God and therefore makes us the subjects of his wrath. So unbelief is a real problem. But now watch how God works past the unbelieving opposition that Paul faced to advance the gospel through Paul. Paul moves out of the religious building to the public place in Ephesus called the Hall of Tyrannus. Apparently Paul would go there at midday for five hours a day to speak about the kingdom of God to those who'd listen. Something like going to a university or a library today. This was a great open door for the gospel because as verse 10 says, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So Paul had the opportunity to evangelize the whole province that he was in for two years. Some have suggested that maybe he's he's working on 1 Corinthians or Romans at this time. I don't know. But he's preaching continually for two years so that everybody's hearing the word of the Lord. And in verse, verses 11 through 16, we see a thrilling scene afterwards. God's gracious power works through gospel preaching to conquer satanic powers. Verses 11 And 12 say, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. So God is doing extraordinary miracles through Paul as Paul is preaching the gospel. These are not typical. These miracles are extraordinary. They're mentioned extraordinary miracles in verse 11. And they're so extraordinary that even Paul's sweat towels and clothes are being used by God to heal diseases and expel evil spirits from people. I think this has been abused by television preachers and internet preachers who say, give me some money for a sweat towel and you'll get this, that, and the other thing. I think this ver- these verses have been abused. I do not think we ought to give to those kind of organizations Paul is doing, God is doing something extraordinary through Paul here. He's on the front lines of a spiritual conflict in an unreached people group, and the Lord's gracious power of light and the devil's power of darkness are at work in this scene. There's a conflict happening here. As John Stott says, the mention of exorcism leads Luke to tell of some Jewish exorcists who attempted to tap into the power they believed to inhere in the name of Jesus with disastrous consequences. Ironically, they don't believe in Jesus, but they use his name for his power. They see people with evil spirits and they plan to use Jesus' name to exorcise them, to put on a magic show. Now, people still do this today in different ways, don't they? Using the name of Jesus for political power or financial gain. It's hypocrisy, but it's hypocrisy of a dangerous kind, as we'll see in verse 15. Because even the evil spirit recognizes that these Jewish exorcists are faking. They're literally using the Lord's name in vain here, and God is jealous for his name. And there will be a boomerang effect on them. The demons know Jesus and respect Paul, but they don't recognize this man, though he tries to use the name of the Lord. And the results are that the exorcism backfires on them, bringing a shameful end to their little magic show. And the demons they were trying to play with beat them up and chase them out of the house they're in. Look at verses 13 through 16. and the man in whom the evil spirit uh, in, in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded <laughs> they're playing with fire and the dark scene uh, in, in this dark scene the gracious power of god is at work through paul producing wholesome results god is healing the sick and diseased sending out evil spirits His kingdom is a kingdom of light, and the light overcomes the darkness. Do you believe that? Still today? Have you seen it in your own life? Watch how it happened in Ephesus. And this became known, verse 17... To all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled or praised. There was an awe at the name of Jesus because of these works that God was doing. Christian, like Paul here, you're surrounded by spiritual darkness today. This is still true of us. We live in a world that is filled with demonic dark powers around us, but they're unseen to the the naked eye. But we who are followers of Jesus aren't to fear the darkness. Remember, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. No matter how dark things look in our culture, God is light and the light overcomes the darkness. We are situated every day in a spiritual war with invisible forces of evil. And though we don't often see evil spirits, we fight by living in the light. I love how David Pallison puts it. The words spiritual warfare never appear in the Bible. It is a pastoral theological term for describing the moral conflict of the Christian life. It is a metaphor for our lifelong struggle with our lies and other liars, our lusts and other tempters, our sins and other evildoers, and the present darkness that continually unsettles us. Our sufferings, whatever their form or cause, provide occasions either to stumble or to stand. Our warfare is over which it will be. To win spiritual warfare is simply to live as light in a dark world. It is to treat others with humility, patience, and thoughtful consideration. It is to live as a conscious and contributing member of we the people whom God has brought together by mercy. It is to have things to say that are worth saying, true, constructive, timely, and filled with grace. To lose spiritual warfare is to live in the darkness to revert to what comes naturally to every fallen heart. It is to walk under the influence in the image of the powers of evil. It is to live as a world of one, willful, inconsiderate, bitter, fearful. It is to speak thoughtlessly, impulsively, falsely, and destructively. It is to live carelessly, unwisely, drifting with the zeitgeist of your time and place. At its core, To lose this war is to forget God and consciously serve yourself. This puts this into the moral dimension, doesn't it? The spiritual battle is a battle for us to live in the light, to live in the truth, to speak truth, to put away lies, to stop stealing and start giving. What about you? Are you winning or losing the spiritual war right now for your heart? Are you living in the light or in the darkness? Serving others or serving yourself? Now watch how these Ephesians come out of the darkness into the light in verses 18 through 20. Here we see how spiritual darkness and idolatry are closely connected. These verses teach us that God's gracious power works through gospel preaching to conquer Here we see the specifics of how the Ephesians turned to Jesus. What a disruption of the status quo the gospel brought to Ephesus. What a movement of light into darkness the name of the Lord was. They practiced magic, and they now bring those practice bring those books that they practiced magic with out in the open renouncing the practices by confessing and exposing these unfruitful works of darkness. And they burn their magic books. David Paulson again, is helpful to explain what's happening here. God is carrying out his invasion, piercing the darkness with light. We who were formerly darkness have been made part of the light that he brings. And every photon of faith and love illuminates and destroys darkness. The fighting is hot, but the initiative and conquering power are on our side. The enemy is on the defensive. Fiery darts are return fire and counterattack. Dangerous with deadly intent? Yes. When darts hit home, the children of light go dark, relapsing into trespasses and sins, living like the sons of disobedience that we once were. But the light will Prevail. Here's how the gospel prevails in Ephesus. Here's how God conquers the darkness by convicting the believers of the idols in their heart that they once held dear and then liberating them from the power of darkness that those idols had. Because the truth of the gospel actually teaches us a whole new way of life, doesn't it? Jesus said the truth will set you free. And the truth of the gospel teaches and empowers us to come to the light and live as free men and women, children of light. And we do this by putting off the old me and putting on the new me. Paul says in Ephesians 4, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking, They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. Listen to this. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ. When when we heard about Christ, we heard and learned about a way of life. When you learned about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. In Ephesus... In a culture obsessed with the occult, they put off magic because their hearts had been changed by Jesus. In Ottawa, today, if your heart's been changed by Jesus, what do you need to stop practicing? When I got saved, I remember being immediately convicted of the music I was listening to. I listened to uh, hip-hop my whole life, pretty much, And I literally was so convicted that I needed to put it away that I threw out my old CDs. Then I bought new Christian hip-hop CDs at the Christian bookstore. Because when Jesus wins our hearts, we have a new desire to get rid of idols, don't we? We just have this sense that these things got to go. Whatever we've been living for instead of the true God needs to go and we know it. Our hearts have a new lover now because the Holy Spirit lives in us and he's jealous for us. We are to love the Lord our God with all our hearts and not share our hearts with idols. And when we do put away these old practices, these old idols, when we do, we are liberated from the dark power that those idols had over us. But beware, when we turn from our idols... For the true God, they will rage. And again, watch how this happened in Ephesus. Last we see that God's gracious power works through gospel preaching to conquer social confusion. Look at verses 21 through 27. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem Jerus- and go to Jerusalem saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods, lowercase g. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great Goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Okay. So I want you to notice why Paul is getting into hot water in this scene. Demetrius is a man who makes idols for a living. That's where he gets his wealth from. And he's upset about Paul's work. And he's upset because he fears Paul's preaching of the gospel and exposing the local idols for the lies that they are will actually put him out of business. Look at verse 26. Paul was saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Lowercase g. Now, whenever you see gods made with hands in Scripture, your ears should perk up. Because what you're hearing about is idolatry. In the Ten Commandments, God commanded his people not to have any other gods but him. And he also commanded them not to make any carved images for themselves. Because why? Because he is the Lord and he is jealous. He wants our hearts and all of our hearts. So to be a faithful believer... Involves going against the grain of our culture that worships idols. And going against the grain of our hearts by radically uprooting the idols that are in there. It's called repentance. Coming to Christ, like the Thessalonian church, means we turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So when people believed in Ephesus, the idols and idolaters and idol makers didn't appreciate Paul's work. Why? Because the worship of the temple goddess Diana, or Artemis, was at risk of losing her power in the city. Her dark power over people. People who come from all over the world to worship her might actually turn to Jesus. And Demetrius is concerned that the gospel may hinder the the temple goddess Artemis' fame. Here we see the social implications of the gospel. Coming to Jesus may mean that your old drug dealer gets mad at you. Because you're not picking up dope anymore. It may mean that your old boyfriend won't call you anymore. Because you're not about that life anymore. Because you've learned the new life that Jesus Christ offers you in the gospel. But when Jesus is Lord of our hearts, these fake lies lose their grip and power on us. These idols that are lies, they lose their grip on us. David Pallison has written a wonderful article called... uh, Idols of the Heart and Vanity Fair. It was the precursor to Tim Keller's Counterfeit Gods. So if you haven't read that, take a few minutes to read. Idols of the Heart and Vanity Fair. Uh, David Pallison says, The biblical theme of idolatry provides a penetrating tool for understanding both the springs of and the inducements to sinful behavior. False gods are highly catching. Idolatry is by far the most frequently discussed problem in the scriptures. The worship of tangible idols is ominously an expression of a prior heart defection from Yahweh, your God. If idolatry is the characteristic and summary Old Testament word from our drift from God, then desires, epithumia, is the characteristic and summary New Testament word for the same drift. Colossians 3 says covetousness, which is idolatry, right? The New Testament merges the concept of idolatry and the concept of inordinate life-ruling desires. Idolatry becomes a problem of the heart, a metaphor for human lust, craving, yearning, and greedy demand. Idols are rarely solitary. Our lives become infested with them. So today, we have plenty of idols in our hearts and homes, don't we? If we're honest, we wake up and live for things that are not Jesus. We're greedy for many things, stuff, status, and success, to name a few. But just imagine a city named Ottawa, so changed by Jesus, that the things people live for start losing their power on them. Imagine porn sites, Amazon, Tim Hortons, Netflix, and Skip the Dishes losing business because the city is filled with people who love Jesus more than their idols, their cravings, their greedy desires. Just imagine that. Look at what happens in verse 28 at the thought of idols being threatened in Ephesus. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristocart, whatever, Uh, uh, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioned with his hand, wanted to make a offense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. "...for you have brought these men here, who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are procouncils. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly." For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Now in the book of Acts, if you've read it, you know that Paul is almost always getting into trouble for his missionary work. He's disrupting disrupting cultures and uh, cities. But under God's care, the city clerk intervenes and settles the crowd that was ready to riot. God isn't done expanding the gospel through the nations. He has preserved his servant Paul and will continue to advance the name of Jesus through his church. He did it then, and he's still doing it today. So I hope you've seen that Acts 19 is a beautiful page of church history. I hope you can relate to it. Before we close, I've got a couple questions for you. Has your confidence in the gospel been waning? As you pray for yourself, as you pray for someone else, have you lost that confidence that the gospel can change anyone? Does this true story give you hope that the gospel can change anyone who believes May the history of the church at Ephesus reinforce your confidence in the gracious power of God today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we who have believed in Jesus have seen what you have done. And it's marvelous in our sight. We pray That you'd use your church, that you'd use us here, us ordinary people, to do extraordinary things for your kingdom, for the nations, for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.